1: A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film and content specialist Cam Maitland and curator and film historian Alicia Fletcher. If your knowledge of burlesque on film is limited to the Cher-Christina Aguilera vehicle, you maybe, just maybe, are missing out on a genre of film that is very much for you. If you're a fan of the movie musical, as I am, extravagant costumes, as I am, and tongue-in-cheek performances, as... Well, you get it. One of those elements will almost always be present in the burlesque movie. Today, we're going to look at two unconventional entries into the genre. But before we do that, Alicia, what are some of the best examples and what should we be looking for? I know you're a big fan of these.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess there's a bit of a disclaimer in that burlesque as a film genre only exists in my brain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like there's no book or yeah, sure. like, no one's ever done a burlesque like <laughs> retrospective. It, It's something that is very personal personal to me, so I feel kind of guilty that I forced us to do this episode. For me, as someone who programs a film series called Ladies of Burlesque, there are multiple components. You can, of course, have a classic film that takes place in a burlesque house, which there are many. But for me, it's more important to think of burlesque in terms of its definition from the 19th century, which is uh, satirizing, making fun of respectable art forms, specifically with uh, subversive characters, most usually women, talking back at the audience. So basically taking the piss out of opera, taking the piss out of high art theater. And I think for me, these two films do that so as much as i love you know a film like lady of burlesque with barbara stanwick which is written by gypsy rose lee um or you know something like or Gentleman. even just straight gypsy <laughs> like we gypsy talk about that too. is yes. certainly a burlesque film um gentlemen prefer blondes to me is a burlesque film despite it it doesn't you know take place in a burlesque house where i love trying to wrap my hat around burlesque on film is is more films like Popeye by Robert Altman, which is, if you haven't seen Popeye from 1980, for me, it's canonical burlesque in that it's Robin Williams and Shelley Duvall acting out a comic strip character with prosthetic body parts and the whole world that they're creating is neither a live action world nor animation, nor it's just, it's just burlesque to me, Um, as is something and I know this is a film that comes up a lot, but Bugsy Malone, you know, this idea of a gangster (laughs) film using very 1930s and 1940s classic film tropes, acted out entirely by children, including Jodie Foster and Scott Bayo, where you know they're in Flintstones-esque gangster cars, and instead of bullets, they're um, assassinating rival gangs with cream pies. That's burlesque to me. So that's why I think both this first film we're going to talk about, um, which is animated, and then later a very interesting ballet on film, which we have very few of, post-1950, to me, is burlesque, if that makes any sense at all.
1: Yeah, I uh, I pick up you're Putting Down. And there's something, too, because like there's such a fine line between the idea of the movie musical and burlesque. And when I think about yeah. the word burlesque, I think there's a risque aspect to it as well. There's something that's going to challenge the audience, be it sexually, be it intellectually, be it like, am I going to sit there and watch Robin Williams do weird facial expressions for an hour and <laughs> a half and be delighted to the songs of Harry Nielsen? Yeah. Like, yes, I, I am. <laughs> to
0: use the musical as an example, to me, Singing in the Rain is not burlesque. It no. is you know it is a musical however looking at someone like Jacques Demy and let me bring it up again skin, <laughs> was which was up <laughs> almost every episode, yeah. or more so you know Young Girls of Roquefort even Umbrellas of Cherbourg those are burlesque because Demy is looking at the classic musicals like Singing in the Rain from the decade prior or two decades prior and satirizing them in some ways so that's where the burlesque comes in to me So not every musical is a burlesque, but there are quite a few musicals that are sort of revisionist musicals or
1: neo-musicals that
0: end up being burlesque. Mm.
1: And some of them do just sit straight in the like fans and feathers, you know, pasty sure. genre sure, as girls. we think of. Chlorines. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, it was, yeah. So that's totally still a thing. And in the fans and feathers genre is where you're going to find our first movie today, Shinbone Alley, an animated movie based on a Broadway musical, based on a concept album, based on a series of <laughs> cartoons and stories from the <laughs> 1910s and 20s. And although watching it today, the movie seems a bit sketchy, literally, this was really a groundbreaking film at the time. Animation was still considered for kids, even though Tex Avery had long been on the scene, like in the 30s and 40s, with shorts like Red Hot Riding Hood, go check that one out if you want something a little spicy for the children, and of course, the very existence of Betty Boop. But it really took until the 70s before animators started explicitly adding adult themes, including burlesque and overt sexuality, into full-length animated movies. Now, keep in mind that Ralph Bakshi's Fritz the Cat, the first X-rated animated film, would follow it the next year, Let's have a look at Shin Bone Alley. Cam, 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 Cam. Are you a fan <laughs> of this one? Had you heard of this one yeah, before the podcast? No, I
2: hadn't. I'd only heard it from Alicia, who likes it. And <laughs> I was like, huh? Um, no, it's a very strange movie. And it's actually a strange play, a strange concept album. Um, it's all based on this ancient... Uh, strip like a column that was satire, comedy, poetry Yeah, it's not even a comic strip, it's uh, like an
0: animated opinions call column from yeah, the New York Evening Standard or something like that.
2: Like a jo- like a joke, but also seemingly kind of sometimes real poetry. Uh from the point of view of a cockroach, uh, who is a reincarnated poet who is tapping it out on a New York typewriter. Lots of like uh satire about New York and uh yeah, so it's it's Archie, the the cockroach, and Mejita Bell's the cat. It's like an alley cat, a saucy, sexy alley cat. Uh, and they're friends, but he's in love with her, but she kind of loves him as a friend. And uh, yeah, it's It weird. opens
0: with a suicide. A weird... This poet, this yes. writer is going to kill himself. You see it on screen. Yes. And instead of dying, is transmigrated into the body of a cockroach.
1: <laughs> which is delightful, and I think one about like this seems like I haven't read the articles yet. I'm gonna go look them up. Apparently, there's like a collected works available to purchase, and uh, the I, very I, like the sense of humor seems very me. Like for example, everything is written in lowercase letters, so both Archie and Mahitabel are written in lowercase letters. And apparently, there's one installment which is capitals at last because he learns how to hit the shift mm. key at the same time because he's a cockroach, right? So you can only jump from thing to thing. I'm like that is very funny. I actually really like that. Yeah,
0: I think this, from what I understand of this. Let's say it's not a comic strip, but for just clarification or for simplification, let's do that. It really was, you know, in the 19... It originates in 1916 and goes into the 20s. It really was this sort of very popular, almost like The Daily Show would be to us today, or uh, The John Oliver Show, where it was commenting on news events and social mores as they were changing, especially as gender roles were changing with the flapper Mm. coming in and the idea of the teenager being like new, like that kids had disposable income and all of a sudden sexuality changes and courtship changes and politics were changing. Mm -hmm. And so it was really like, it was really well, widely read. um, And it's kind of interesting that I only knew it from this film. Mel Brooks adapted it at one point from the like comedy album that was released and it it's mm-hmm. had a lot of iterations and yet all of them including this film I would argue are completely lost.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's like it's interesting because this is kind of when you go through it it's kind of a um like this is an adaptation of this stuff from the turn of the century kind of adapted into the 50s and 60s and then the animated film is made of that in the 1970s so it's this kind of multiple iterations and i think in some ways it's uh it works and in some ways you're like oh yeah especially knowing like you said fritz the cat is next year and this is kind of adult in its own way but it kind of is is between kid and adult and can't quite decide and the humor, like, it's weird that it doesn't make fun of hippies, for no, instance. No,
1: it doesn't. At it all, it yeah. makes
2: fun of beatniks, really. Like, it seems to be jokes about beatniks
1: yeah that's what's trying for the 60s right like that's the I think yeah. the biggest thing um, yeah, what yeah. I think is interesting yeah it's a lot of reviewers at the time because like like we have said there's really nothing for adults in animation at this time it's not really considered that way sure. a lot of the adults are like this is going to go over the heads of eight year olds and it's like yeah it opens with a suicide who do yeah, you think yeah. this is for it's I- and very I mean, it, interesting it's, it's
2: not far from Fritz the cat no, is the interesting not, thing right. like I feel like the humor and stuff is adult like it's not I don't think it's trying to be a kid's animation at all no like I think it's trying to be an adult animation. So I think it's more almost that they didn't know how to market it yet. They didn't know, and there wasn't the midnight showings and stuff. And, And I mean, also when this is at its best, I think it's when it's the weird experimental animation like, honestly you should be on drugs trip out stuff yeah
0: and it's it is speaking of that experimental aspect to this film there's a lot of hearkening back to the animations of the 19 of the teens and the 20s which were absolutely Mm. for adults so the original like illustrator of these two characters for the comic strip or the column was george harriman who is maybe a name that not a lot of people would recognize unless you're really into animation but he developed um crazy cat and ignat's mouse and was like a forerunner to mickey mouse really important as a pioneer of animation and they have cameos from those two characters in this film and some of those acid trip scenes um, so there's definitely a, a an aspect of this film being in conversation with the history of animation it's just in a 2021 lens we've forgotten that whole history so it just doesn't make sense but i liked kind of reading about that and yeah the colors are super bright it's a very anti-disney palette if you look at like the disney Mm -hmm. color palette of the 70s and in season one we talked about watership down from 1978 so i'd refer uh listeners if they have this interest in animation to definitely listen to that one this idea of like anti-Disney palette, anti-Disney brush strokes, um, really using so many different f- styles of animation, and I'm not sure it entirely yeah. works. I don't think they all work together in harmony, no. but they're like you say, Cam, those ones with the kind of schoolhouse rock aesthetic
2: look yeah, great. Yeah, absolutely schoolhouse rock, yeah. It yeah. seems very
1: similar to heavy metal. If people have seen heavy metal, this is better, but like in that, the yeah. fact that like the animation keeps changing in that way.
2: Yeah, it is weird that that that, like a number, it almost seems like it should change a little more, and also it's kind of, unfortunately, a letdown when it goes back to the sort of you know, somewhat Hanna-Barbera-y, I guess, mm-hmm. but more nicer, uh, like animals, which are fine. But uh, yeah, you're right. It's like School Has Rock. It's like the old like uh, Tootsie Pop commercials, that kind of animation. That was very big in the 70s. Again, kind of weird to me that a lot of it looks a lot like 70s animation in the way that was very popular, mm-hmm. but it just didn't connect, I guess. There was
0: a lot of kitty films in the 60s and 70s that... Mm-hmm. Um, predate Aristocats, so Aristocats is 1970, So obviously, that's a pretty popular Disney film and one of the first Disney films to have cats that weren't uh, maniacal evil, I would say. <laughs> but in the 60s, especially through Warner Brothers and some of the Looney Tunes stuff, but you had a you had a film like Gay Paree. Like there was a lot of kid, animated kitty films. Gay Paree actually was voiced by Judy Garland. It's an amazing film. I love it so much. But it gets all swallowed up in the like. Disney hegemony that we we live with, and I think it's fascinating to me that this is a film about cats because they're not super popular. (laughs) And she does try to drown her kittens, and sings a song about. And
1: apparently. In the original version, she actually does drown the kittens. She succeeds in yeah. killing Life the kittens. Life is hard I, in the alleys, you know? for...
2: like... Yes. <laughs>
1: uh, I'd be yeah, okay. I... Yeah, I don't know. I just that's the one part I was like, nope, no longer on her side. Yeah. Sorry, don't try to kill the cats.
2: It, yeah, true. She is a terrible mother. It is also worth saying that this was the like weird time for both Disney and kids movies, where I think like. There, while this is a weird tonally movie, there also wasn't, like, I mean, we've talked about teenagers, they marketed uh, Abominable Dr. Fives.
0: Yeah, good they, point. They
2: didn't know about uh, tweens. So essentially you have like, this year you have like knobs and Broomsticks <laughs> yes. or like the Million Dollar Duck or like a Kurt Russell <laughs> movie. And or you have this. So did you like just make up of, the
1: million dollar you know,
2: duck? No, because no, I, that's I talk it about million Disney dollar film. duck all the time. When Disney <laughs> I mean, Disney yeah. Plus was
0: launching, our joke was like, "Yeah, but are they going to have yeah. million dollar duck?" And, and they did. And <laughs> I think
2: that they do. I think you can log on to Disney Plus and watch the million dollar duck. It's all all these like uh, like Dean Jones movies, uh, okay. like yeah, just these kind of duds nowadays that no one thinks about, like the Apple Dumpling Gang yeah. and stuff, um, were what they were making. The cat from Outer Space. So, yeah like your favorite uh but anyway so it's like kind of a weird time because there's not quite kids movies yet or you think about something like that we talk about on the tv show uh, uh willie oh, and the chocolate God. factory which was that a is. huge fa- I, but a, and a huge failure at the box yeah. office too like it just nothing was really i don't think that they quite knew what to do with kids well yet.
0: and it's interesting and, and to your point cam like if you were making this for kids then carol channing was not who you should have cast and to no, me, Carol no. Channing is <laughs> delightfulness. I love Carol Channing. I love that Carol Channing is getting... I mean, she only passed relatively recently, and she's quite elderly. Mm-hmm. But in the queer community, even through, like, RuPaul's Drag Race, Carol Channing is queen. And I love that there's, like, probably very radicalized tweens looking up who Carol Channing <laughs> is. And, like, possibly <laughs> this film would come up. But certainly in in 1971, Carol Channing was a huge celebrity, Um, And she would have been really well known for all of her Broadway work. Uh, Specifically, she starred in the role that we think of for Marilyn Monroe in uh, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes in 1949. So predating the film version of 1953. And she starred as Lorelei Lee and even did a, a Broadway sequel to it called Lorelei. So she was very associated with this burlesque sort of flapper um, gold digger, which Mahedabel the mouse definitely <laughs> is. She's just not very good at it.
1: Mehedabel the cat. Oh,
0: sorry, Mehedabel the cat is a gold digger. She's just really bad at it. Um, mm. So it's funny to, to think about Carol Channing as an animated character in... Um, misguided children's film 50 years after the fact.
1: But she is an animated character. You think of every character she plays, and she's got... uh, um, One of my favorite performances she does is with Perry Como, her singing If You Hadn't But You Didn't. If people Mm -hmm. haven't heard her do that, go Mm -hmm. watch her do it. It is one of the funniest things. But even, like, raspberries as she's, like, leaning out of a plane is, like, pure
0: burlesque cartoon animated. It's vaudeville, too, like, burlesque and vaudeville. Mm -hmm. I think you... Probably not for the next film, but you could have instead of burlesque, you could have inserted the word vaudeville into this yeah. description of the film um, and they go hand in hand to I me mean, burlesque was shown vaudeville reviews and vaudeville tropes were used in burlesque, etc. But uh, yeah, she is so fascinating. And she has a really great episode of The Muppet Show if anyone is watching The Muppet <laughs> Show on Disney+. Plus, Like, her hosting The Muppet Show is pretty epic. And I think that that is the perfect environment for her. And I think this is a really yeah. good environment for her in Shinbone Alley.
2: She doesn't star in a lot of movies No,
0: either, no. Which is
2: kind of interesting. She's actually, she doesn't have a lot of, I mean, she was mostly a stage actor, so she doesn't have a ton of credits. And she's
1: top-built And not this. a ton
2: of good ones yeah, either. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: This was one of her favorite roles as well. There's a fantastic interview mm. she did uh, contemporaneously with Studs Terkel. Please no one ruin Studs Terkel for me. I really who like him. I'm no, he's great. I don't know who Studs Oh, too, he but...
2: did Working. Are you familiar oh, with yes. Working? He did a book yeah, where he interviewed okay. all... He's essentially like one of the first... He's yes, like the okay. original NPR. I can picture his of, name
0: written yeah. in... Okay, got it. Yes. Yeah.
1: He has a voice that's very similar to Hunter S. Thompson, if Hunter S. Thompson did not... <laughs> become a heavy, heavy addict. Like, he's mm-hmm. got that very dry... Um, I'm a big Studs Terkel fan, so I'm really hoping no one does, but he's he's just so charming and, like, how dryly he tosses stuff off. And one of the questions he asks her as she's talking about how much she loves doing it, this is he says, there's nothing wrong with saying toujours gay, is there? Or even being toujours gay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, no, Studs, there is not. And it, I think this is such a perfect role for her because she seemed like someone who was always, even though not a gold digger, not everything the head about is, mm-hmm. she was always looking looking for the bright side of things and was always mm-hmm. like at 97 you know she's doing RuPaul's Drag Race cameos and is delighted by Bob the Drag Queen's impersonation of her and like she just seemed like she had that joie de vivre and the character of Mehitable could have been so dour and unlikable and horrible except for don't we all want that pursuit of happiness that she has and that not that sure. why Archie loves her? It's interesting how her character
0: changes from the original because um, the way that she's drawn by George Harriman uh, is that you know she's this amazing Seated cat with a, I'm just quoting, this isn't a word that I would choose, a gimpy hind leg with patchy oh fur that's perpetually frozen. And that's why she warms up by dancing so she doesn't freeze to death. Very different embodiment of Mehitable in this film where mm-hmm. she's sultry and slinky and kind of flappery and... Um, very curvaceous
1: for a cat yeah. <laughs> um, well even her little like we talk about the fans in fur literally mm-hmm. even like her little tail is um is like a fan right that's how she uses it yeah, in her hips it's, and everything. it's very
0: peppy le Pew. um i mean that's a good reference too because the animator of this would go on and do sort of the bugs bunny and tweety hour so that's like the looney tunes incarnation that people of our generation who were kids in the eighties and nineties would have grown up with. It's not the original Looney Tunes is what was kind of playing on Saturday morning TV. And that trajectory makes sense for me watching this film, that someone would go to the Looney Tunes side. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that as part of a kind of back and forth that this film is very Looney, very Tex Avery and very Looney Tunes. And, um, uh, and then it ends up influencing a later incarn- incarnation of Looney Tunes. Mm-hmm.
1: We're talking about Carol Channing playing Mehetta Bell. The role was originated by Eartha Kitt. Yes. And I do have to say that I don't know yes. which... Oh, sorry, Tammy Grimes uh, so was I, in there as well. I, oh,
2: yeah. Well, I think it goes back and forth, actually, because yeah. I think Carol Channing literally originated it, but uh, Eartha it, Kitt was on Broadway. Yeah,
1: right. And yeah. then it became yes. Tammy Grimes, and then it yes. went back to... The okay, Carol Channing yeah, I think Carol Channing, Channing was the album. album. Yes, correct.
2: Yeah, gotcha. They're all unusual so like yeah.
1: women's voices, which I kind yes, of love the idea yeah. that they're... Yeah, if people aren't familiar with Tammy Grimes, there's another, like, incredible Broadway actress with, like like... a very unusual voice. And this is Eartha Mm. Kid
0: in 1957. So it's pre-Catwoman Eartha Kid. So then there's another way that this film is influencing, you know, this gargantuan pop culture milestone that is Adam West's uh, Batman. So it's interesting Mm. to see all this DNA in Shinbone Alley and then go to research it. And like, I read a few period-specific reviews from 1971 and then it is just radio silence about this film. And I don't remember how (laughs) I found this. I was probably doing no, a weird oh, yeah. kitty thing because I try to sure. – um, I have a cat he- i think i'm really interested in films that have non-evil cats and uh Ah. this might have come up when i was making a list a listicle or a letterboxed uh list and was just like what is it's an interesting name right shinbone alley that's such a bizarre title for a film
2: oh and i mean if you look it up like the reason it doesn't exist is because it's like it was produced by like companies that barely exist fine arts films and then it was owned by or it was distributed by allied artists which also like went out of business in the yeah. 70s. Uh, and Fine Arts Films is like yeah, it barely it's mostly uh, the director John Wilson um, uh, who you were talking about David Dtunes. Yeah, who went on David, the animator. Funny, Yeah. Yeah, but John Wilson who is the other the like overseeing director. He he's a guy who is like nominated for an Oscar for this like Japanese style animated film called Terra the Stonecutter. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and then he essentially did kind of like classy British stuff, or he did a couple Is this ads Wilson and things. John Wilson who did
0: Greece, because yes. he animated the title yes. sequence for Greece. He did
2: the title sequence for That's Greece. Cool. That's probably like his biggest. Uh, thing. And he also did all the animated sequences of the Sonny and Cher that's show. so cool. Which mm. was pre- pretty big at the time, yeah. And the Carol Burnett uh ending yep. is him apparently. So he kinda just did random stuff. Uh lots of filler things. Like the um I think that's the trailer for Irma LaDuce is animated it, by oh, him. Oh yeah, I
0: didn't know I mean I knew it was an animated trailer. I love Irma LaDuce, the Billy Wilder yes. show but that's yeah, it's cool to see I mean, John Wilson is such a common name that it doesn't stand out. Yes. But to see, like... Yeah,
2: they call him John David Wilson okay. often, I think, to make him stand out <laughs> from the other John I Wilson. I think while
0: watching this, I had assumed that potentially this film had been produced by a cracker company. Because there's a lot of moments mm-hmm. where Mahitabel, just in her Carol Channing voice, which I don't do the impression well, is just like, can't I have a cracker? And she just keeps asking for <laughs> crackers. And it just, I don't know. It made me crave crackers. Watching
2: it's this. A, yeah. I mean, it's a very strange... And like, yeah, I I mean, also all the voices. It's got the voice of uh, Fred Flintstone, mm-hmm. Alan Reed. It's got John, John Carradine, Carradine playing John Carradine yeah. Can basically. We talk about
1: that, that? I think that that is the best musical number. Like we've talked the before Romeo about how Juliet kids' Juliet movies song? is so yeah. good, and kids' uh, kids' movies, and uh, I think animation and musicals in general live or die on how catchy the music is. And this mm. one has some clunkers. Oh, <laughs> but, absolutely sure. But that um, that Romeo and Juliet interpretation is excellent and very, and especially because it's performed by. By Carol Channing and like that sort of quick playing with rhythm is a thing that mm-hmm. she does and she does so well that I can't and, and John Carradine's a freaking Shakespearean actor so he's able sure. to pick it up so the two of them are able to just bounce off each other yeah perfectly. he's it's this fabulous. like
0: fraud talent agent theater impresario but he's just mm. gonna like <laughs> put her to work on the streets to steal him crackers or
2: something
0: like, like yeah. <laughs> not yeah it's yeah. very
2: I mean he's a it's very fascinating too because it's like this is not it's, I mean, John Carradine's kind of wild because he never stopped acting. True. He was like a very high, high functioning alcoholic, but this is not exactly the height of his career. <laughs> no. So it's kind of a, a strange time to roll him in the same year. He made, let's see, 10 other movies, including Hell's Bloody Devils, Horror of the Blood Monster, money. Blood of the Iron yeah. Maiden. Yeah. I mean, he had, uh, he had a lot of alimony. Uh, but uh, the mummy and the curse of the jackals like and this is (laughs) the ones where he like rolled up behind a desk and did three lines and then they sold it on him so it's kind of fascinating that he really uh, with his whole chest does this movie and does a delightful character that is seemingly animated to look like him too which is kind of charming and is I think the majority of the like it's most of the plot we should say this is not a very traditional three-act structure the Archie bits are mostly just like one-off segments and then this is like the majority of Mahitabelle plot is this, uh, this John Carradine plot.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's really Mehitable's movie. It's not about Archie mm-hmm. much no. at all, which I kind of like, because I think a lesser a lesser movie, I will say, uh, a movie that's not quite as interesting or something that we wouldn't necessarily be talking about now, would just be talking about him trying to romance her. And it would all be focused on his obsession with her. But that's yeah. not what it is. It's watching no. her kind of try to survive, and then he's narrating her story. Yeah, So and he's I like the Watson to her Sherlock.
2: Mm-hmm. The interesting choice is that it's essentially like, it's kind of about his fraught wanting to be in love with her but in the end he kind of just realizes why he should still be friends with her even though they'll never be in love which is an interesting thing. <laughs> it's very anti-toxic again. Strange masculinity. for a children's movie. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yes. And I mean also <laughs> I, I don't know it's very weird because you're never you're never going to be a cockroach in love with a cat. But that's also a large part they of it. They do
1: kind of address the mechanics of that and how it wouldn't work yeah. so which also makes this Well, adult, these are reincarnated
0: poet, failed writer, so... God, and he tries to commit suicide twice. I think I don't even think like it starts with the suicide and yeah. then there's a oh yeah he, he,
2: well he tries multiple. There's like a the co- comedy sequence of him keeping trying to commit suicide <laughs> and it never works. And I mean he also tries to do some sort of like pseudo communist bug uprising. Yeah, but um, you, th- I mean
1: in yeah. that you definitely see the Mel Brooks like because yes. it's yes. Mel Brooks and Morris who would go on to be like huge collaborators in a bunch yeah, of other yeah. films, right? Yeah. So I think and, you. Yeah. It's like pretty
2: early for him, too. It's like our show of shows era, Mel Brooks, too. So that's like young man Mel Brooks, which is interesting. I
1: think
0: this is me. an important film. If you're interested in Mel Brooks, if you're interested in animation history, if you like cats, if you're a cat person and you're tired of the propaganda mm-hmm. that all cats are evil, I think this is a really fascinating <laughs> film that if it had been released a few years later, more in the era of things like Watership Down um, and Lord of the Rings and... Um, it would have been mm. there would have been more i think cohesion in its story but also bolder uh style and then it's really impressive yeah. cuz it's 71 cuz it's just so early in terms of that adult animation canon but it it just doesn't quite stand out enough however i think people yeah. should watch it i mean it's
1: really the interesting. closest thing I can say. You can see the seeds of the producers here in terms of what the music is doing, in terms of the satire, in terms True. of the sense of humor. Um, I cannot hear someone say the word springtime without thinking of springtime for Hitler, which is not a good thing to sing out loud. <laughs> wow. mm-hmm. So uh, I think that, like, yeah, you really see what they are going to go on to create from this musical. It's one of those like. Um, uh, not necessarily Rosetta Stone, but like it's like an initial seedling an kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. You go back <laughs> you had had to ur-text? do sure,
2: yeah yeah yes. oh there we go okay of. yes yeah and it's like yeah i think you're right that it's i think also like everyone involved like john wilson when you look at his stuff he would have probably loved to have made more of a uh ralph Foxy situation <laughs> and yeah this movie really probably would have hit better if everyone was stoned and you know university students watching. and if you were
0: in like watching this on 42nd street like times square in 1971 with mm-hmm. prostitutes and totally um, exactly yeah. then go out and sh- get
1: yourself a ladybug That's sh- sh- all you <laughs> oh, exactly. ladybug the brothel theater. my god that was upsetting <laughs> yeah. that's probably it
0: at it's most burlesque in terms of yeah. uh, sex workers and uh, yeah it is those were scary ladybugs I don't know they've seen some things
1: <laughs> but they are much more compatible with Archie as I think we all know
2: okay one of the reasons why this is a strange film is it is produced by a guy who did not produce a lot of movies but was heavily involved in film with a capital F mm-hmm. Pre- Preston M fleet who invented the photo mat, which if you remember dude. those, uh, yellow things that were in, uh, parking lots where you could develop your photos, especially in America. You see them a lot in movies, quite often. characters are in
0: uh, old Dutch coffee drive-ups. Like at <laughs> sure. least in my, in my state, Oregon, they converted all the photo I'm mats sure. to like, or there's also, um, there's a chain of topless, uh, baristas that took over all the films. oh
2: yes I've seen that in Oregon what? yeah 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 um yeah so uh that's it's interesting because he invented that which made him very rich and he also went on to invent Omnimax which for Canadians that's what science world yeah. is Yeah, it's an Omnimax theater the big domes so like it's this kind of weirdo guy who actually did not produce a lot of films this is one of just a handful of films that he produced um so he also believed in it too that's the kind of thing it's a, it is a very kind of unique not indie, but as close, damn close to indie as you can get production, which also makes it stand out a lot, like the Bakshi films uh, and stuff like that in the later 70s. Agreed.
1: Yeah. I think we're all saying people should go check this one. It's short, too. It's like an hour and like 10 minutes. Yes. Like it's, it's pretty, I like would it's even say length you length. It.
0: Watch a 10 minute clip. And probably like
2: <laughs> the best
0: clip, and then that suffices. It. I mean, but... yeah.
2: Well, do you have a your favorite part? I think the the coolest animation is that moth to the flames. Yeah, that's
0: really good. I did actually think the ladybugs were trippy, and um, I don't want to advocate for watching the part where Mehitable sings about drowning her kittens, but the no. song affected me because I'm like. Yeah, Yeah. being a single mom on the streets. like I actually think this is a quite realistic take on her not wanting to be a mom and then being, knowing what it's going to mean for her career and knowing that her life is basically over because she has these kittens. Uh, But she does save them.
2: It's also worth saying that there's that full sequence that's animated by George Harriman, which is kind of like cool, the the part with Ignatz and and Crazy Cat, which is wild. And probably the only time he had anything in that part of the century.
1: Absolutely, I think that's true. Great. So I think we can uh, move on to our next film and we shall do so gracefully because it is entirely a ballet. Get ready for Uncanny Valley. It's Beatrix Potter coming up after the break. Selling a little or a lot. Our final movie may not be everyone's cup of tea, as it is a ballet created for film. But for those who love incredible physical feet, the stories of Beatrix Potter brought to life, and the reinforcement that rodents, especially squirrels, are total dicks, this will be a real treat. We've talked about ballet shot for film before when we discussed center stage last season, but this movie takes it to a whole other level. Even if there are no numbers choreographed to Jamiroquai and no motorcycles, it's still very accessible. For the people, you might say. Alicia, this is ballet. So what exactly makes this one burlesque?
0: Well, first of all, I want to mention you're talking about center stage for people who maybe... Yeah. it's like, uh. the Jamiroquai motorcycle? Um, I think this is burlesque mostly because of the costumes. And also because um, there's a lot of ballets where, you know, if you think about Swan Lake, if there's creatures a lot. In ballet but this is actually a ballet that is some of the most beautiful costume designs and this was this won a bafta and was maybe nominated no it wasn't nominated for the oscar but it was nominated for um christine edzard who did the costumes in art direction was nominated for the bafta for this and there's these masks these these anthropomorphic masks designed by uh, i'm gonna get his name wrong but rostislav dubojinski who was like the preeminent Russian mask maker for like ballet russe and all kind of like and it's just it comes off and it's so uncanny and it's so lifelike it's so lifelike I don't know I can't I, I don't have a great argument for why yeah. this is burlesque other than that no other film looks like this no other film yeah. this is a silent film there is no dialogue not a single stitch of dialogue and we do have human characters where we see. Beatrix Potter is a little girl, and I think her nurse and maybe her father. um, And we're seeing, you know, her actually illustrate these characters, and then the characters kind of jump off the page, and they start enacting these stories through ballet. And it's very rare to have a silent film in the early 70s. Um, Like, you don't even have to put subtitles on this film. This could translate to Russian. This translates all over the world, and that's really unusual. But what makes it burlesque to me is just how... Uncanny, unusual and satirical it is Mm because Beatrice Potter's stories are satirical and strange, especially reading them now in 2021, like she was writing the end of the 19th century um, and they're very upsetting in some cases with how these creatures are punished. Squirrel Nutkin, mm-hmm. the the jerk that you were referring to earlier, total jerk. You know, like he gets his tail eaten off by an owl, and then like, it's
1: all it's just. It's- you want to talk Uncanny Valley? That owl is terrifying in yeah. this thing, in this thing. Yeah. But to talk about the costumes and everything, this is yeah. one of the most beautiful Stunning. presentations I think I've ever seen. Everything is to scale, yes. so when they're in like different areas, Some if they're mouse. like the the two the ta- yeah the tail of two bad mice when they go into their thing, the only thing mm-hmm. where it gets a a little too weird is that because everybody's human in the same thing. You got hedgehogs the same size as mice, the same size as squirrels, the same size as ducks, yeah, and you're like, hold on a second. But that—that's <laughs> like, a
2: very the, duck, weird world. The, the ducks a little bit. Yeah, that goes that, back that to duck. Potter's
0: illustrations. I think where everything is is on mm-hmm. one scale. And yeah, the mouse you're referring to is named Hunka Monka. So I grew up with Beatrice yes. Potter as one of even more so than something like the uh, Winnie the Pooh and some of the other kind of stories that most Canadian kids grew up with. I, I guess I had a very British influence in my childhood, so I knew these characters and these books inside and out. And I had not heard of this film until a year ago. And it—I full credit to the Criterion Channel for just randomly popping it on a Sunday (laughs) matinee. And it blew my mind because I do, I am a big ballet fan and I love, and we'll talk about Powell and Pressburger in a moment because that connects to this film hugely. But, um, you know, my assumption of watching a filmed ballet from the 70s would be static camera, pretty bad lighting, like pretty boring and that is not that's not this this is stunning cinematography this is movement this really was made for film I think it's probably at least to my eyes and I'm no expert the best ballet on film I've seen it really harkens back to something like The Red Shoes and um, Tales of Hoffman as directed by Powell and Pressburger and that makes sense because the director of this film and it's his only film Reginald Mills Um, is the Academy Award-nominated editor for The Red Shoes and a lot of Powell and Pressburger films, especially the ballet sequences. And it's choreographed by uh, Sir Frederick Ashton, who was a student of Leonide Mazine, who choreographed all the Powell and Pressburger films, including Red Shoes. So there's a real Powell and Pressburg um, heritage to this film that I think helps with how surreal. It's uncanny, and it's very surreal
2: hmm. Also okay. very important to say, Mr. Frederick Ashton plays Mrs. Tiggy Winkle. Yeah. Yes! Who opens the film. <laughs> Mrs. Tiggy Winkle is a
0: hedgehog um, laundress. Grant. She was one of my favorites. Yes, of I had a watercolor. My...
2: She's in a lot of the stories, right? She That's is, like one yeah. of the few I could name off the top of my head was Mrs. Tiggy Yeah. My
0: great aunt was a somewhat notable artist um, uh, in British Columbia. And when I was little, every year she would paint me a Beatrix Potter um, watercolor. So I have, like, a stack of all of these characters mm. painted in, like, the 1980s um, from this woman who's long past. But that's why I kind of... Names like Jemima Puddle Duck, Honka uh, Munka, yeah. yes, Pigling yeah. Bland, Mr. Todd, so Jeremy good. Fisher. I also have a bunch of brooches. I wear a lot of... Like, even if you watch a year in film, I'm willing to bet, go to, a, like, a random episode, I'm probably wearing a Beatrix Potter brooch. <laughs> <Damn>. <laughs>
2: We're also in a weird time because, like, obviously between this film and, like, five years ago, no one, no no child would have cared so much about True. Beatrix Potter. But now the movies are kind of huge Peter again. Rabbit. Those Peter Rabbit movies do pretty well. Yeah. And they have all these guys in it, even if they're just background characters. I think all the, mm-hmm. all the dudes show up. I've only seen the first one, but what, I seem to what remember. What do you
0: think Beatrix Potter and or Sir Frederick Ashton would have taken... <laughs> um, from James Corden as <laughs> <Yeah>. Peter Reck- <laughs>
2: Uh, I mean, he does like to get down and boogie so yeah, I guess that's uh, a Peter thing. I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, the interesting thing is there's not a lot of Peter Rabbit. I was this. just going to say. No. Like, this is a very light on Peter Rabbit, which is kind of a wild choice.
1: I No, I don't think so. I think the reason why is because he's fighting against Mr. McGregor, who's really the only human in a lot of them. And therefore, if you're working with the scale aspect, that's you fair. can't do that's it. That's a great point. He's,
2: he's like our uh, our audience surrogate. He's always <laughs> peeking around something, checking yeah, out what Benjamin Bunny
0: is a big character too and uh, mm. I definitely wear him on one episode I can't remember which year but I color sure. coordinated a cardigan to my Benjamin Bunny uh, brooch and yeah he's not in it so it is
2: I mean n- neither Flopsy Mopsy nor Cotton Taylor True. are <laughs> available it is, in this film it's interesting
0: when you think about I'm doing a lot of thinking about Beatrix Potter and I know we have a biopic starring <laughs> Renee Zelger, which I have not seen from 2006 no, but I believe is it, universally panned and thought to be terrible Um, she was, you know, Beatrix Potter was one of the first children's authors to understand the, um, goldmine in merchandising toys from books to children, but not just toys, but homeware, like housewares. Like if you think about it, I remember growing up with, I want to say it was maybe Royal Dalton or something, but all the Beatrix Potter dishes for babies that exist and you see them now at value villages all the time. But she was really the first author in the 19th century to realize she was like the proto-George Lucas, where she was making something um, media in this case literature and then
1: marketing toys for it Mm -hmm. she was also stripping the flesh off of animals with (laughs) with various types of acid to be able to get the illustrations correct so you know she was very much of the like and i mean that's her illustrations are gorgeous and that's part of the reason why she was doing anatomical studies that other people weren't doing
0: and she's a huge name in terms of conservation like she really is considered someone who conserved a lot of the lake district in England she's very wealthy and she bought a lot of land and then left it to the National Trust and yeah and then, you know she was she was heinous towards animals in a way that someone from the 1870s living on a
1: farm who ate rabbit every day probably would be but they're shooting a lot of this in the actual lake district like they are actually outdoors mm, yeah, in a lot of which this. is beautiful. Yeah, it's absolutely gorgeous. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. this is a beautiful movie. I, going into this, I have to admit, I was kind of like, oh, my God, do I want to sit through this? It <laughs> doesn't overstay its welcome. It's very mm. charming. I was I was delighted by this. And at no point was I like, can I need to go to the bathroom. I was like, no, 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 this is really lovely. Well, it's interesting because you had the same
0: opinion as Roger Ebert. Because Roger Ebert was assigned to this in 1971. It was showing in two movie theaters in New York City maybe one in Chicago, one in New York City, and he was assigned this to review and was like ginormous eye roll. He doesn't like ballet. He says the first thing he says in the review is that he's never seen a live ballet, which I thought was interesting. Oh wow. And he was prepared to fully hate this and was absolutely won over by how nuanced it is and how the characters um don't dance like Nureyev they dance like a frog like Jeremy Fisher is doing it's just the translation of the choreography and this is of course the Royal Ballet from London who performed in Covent Garden um it is just such a mastery of choreography, and he was—he kind of apologizes at the end of his re- review and, and, and humbles himself, which I really appreciated reading. And then brings up the fact, and this is really interesting, that this theater is only showing in rich neighborhoods, or sorry, this movie yeah. yeah. is only showing in rich neighborhoods with movie theaters, and so it's really. Um, although in England, this was a this was a box office smash.
2: Yeah, which is also fascinating, and I think also maybe points to, not to fully show my cards, maybe points to how few movies there are for kids. I do remember going to the ballet and enjoying it as a kid, but it is a little wild to me that this was like a... (laughs)
0: It. yeah I think it is wild but I think it is but, a testament to its production values
1: aside yeah. from not just being for kids though there was nothing like this tonally wi- yeah. on either side sure. right because we I, I think one of my favorite things is there's an interview with one of the producers in the Los Angeles Times before this was released saying this was more of a more daring to produce than a porno because at this point <laughs> everything was dark everything was nasty it was vicious we like mm. we talked about how cynical most of the 70s are and especially the early 70s coming out of, like, the summer of love and the end of sure. that, right? Um, this is just pure uh, ephemera, joy, um, delight. It's, it's escapism. The tagline for this is literally, literally do you remember when you were small? That's Which so is what sweet. it's doing. It's bringing you back into that. And there's, it's guileless. And I can see how there's some people who would look at this and go, oh, it's too twee? Yeah. But I don't think mm-hmm. it is. I think it sits, like, in this very weird sweet spot of just being gentle, kind, but still approachable and not sacred. I
0: do think that it's a better tagline than the one that you just read um, to say that it was harder to pull off than porno. Like that should have been on the poster, and that's probably where it got better distribution in the
2: US. Harder to pull but off. It's a great porno. point. I
0: mean, yeah, I I'm I've I've watched this a few times since seeing it for the first time um on Criterion. It is theoretically an MGM film, I believe, at least in North America, so it's possible mm. for people to see this. It's the magic of cinema, right? There's there's certain kind of sure. meta films that in their exact form just sort of celebrate what cinema can do like no other. And if you think about ballet, um, you know, ballet can be conveyed in paintings and drawings in some ways, like Degas does a very good job of trying to convey movement in, in painting and drawing in his case, but you can't really pull it off. Um, you certainly can't, you know, it really has to be seen live. And before the invention of the moving image, there was no way to replicate seeing a ballet for the masses unless they were there in person. So, mm-hmm. and that's why at the beginning of cinema history, if you think about like 1895, 1896, someone like Louis Fuller, they're looking at, which is both also very burlesque, they're looking at dancers and ballet for the very earliest films. You know, filmmakers like Edison and other companies um, are looking to ballet because it celebrates something that could not have ever been done without this invention and so seeing something almost 100 years later that's doing just that and doing it so well where you can actually take you know for uh, sir frederick ashton this very famous dancer and choreographer um and put him in a hedgehog suit and and <laughs> and little black booties in a apron and uh. just i'd never at any point really focused on those characters being dancers. I focused on them being Or male animals. or
1: female. They're just the characters. Interchangeable. Like, yeah, I think... it
0: really was like and I think because I know these names and they're characters I grew up with, I'm like really excited to see the fox pull the feathers out of Jemima Puddle Duck's butt and that's it was violent. as It it's a very violent act and he's, she's just like mm. wiggling her butt and trying to run away and you know the danger because, you know, fox are going to eat geese. That's going And the happen.
1: danger is real. Like when Squirrel Nutkin's getting messed up by the owl, you're like Like, oh, okay, I know where the story goes, but if I was a kid, like, I don't know what I would do there. Nutkin had it coming. (laughs) that kid did have a comment okay. I want to talk about Frederick Ashton just for a second because apparently he was known for his party impersonations <laughs> specifically he would do Queen Victoria on a regular basis but he often played female characters like he played the wicked stepsister in Cinderella sure. and a bunch of stuff and he has a great little mini documentary that they made for him which is also very charming he seems like a really interesting dude and so to get to see any of that work preserved I think is also really a uh, a testament to the medium and a testament to the film um And I want to talk about just for a second the some of the physical feats because they're like you said these costumes like just go look at the costumes at the be all and end all and know that people are dancing in these like gargantuan things where like you can't see their eyes like the eyes are the character's eyes. For me is Jemima Puddle Duck with that giant back end on fucking point. (laughs) I'm like how are you doing that when you're obviously off balance. That's incredibly impressive.
0: Yeah there's a lot of technical feats and keep in mind they're under you know I think stage lighting is very hot when you're dancing back live but I think probably on a soundstage <laughs> it's really really hot um, it is yeah. really impressive and it really the only thing I can really compare it to is something like Tales of Hoffman uh, directed by uh, Michael Power and Emmerich Pressburger and then also The Red Shoes which I think The Red Shoes has come up on this podcast uh, certainly when we talked about center stage we talked about The Red Shoes and that is one of my favorite films of all time and the, the fact that this is Reginald Mills, who edited the, both of those films, his, his only directorial film, is really interesting to me. He doesn't go on to do much. He does a lot of editing later. He edits. Um, uh, he had edited a lot of interesting British film noir, like The Servant. Like He's such a fascinating figure and a name I'd never heard of. Like, certainly reading about Palin Pressburger, I'm sure Reginald Mills' name had come up because he, of course, was nominee for the Academy Award. But I never Mm -hmm. thought about him, and now I'm thinking about him, um, and that is really nice because like going through his filmography, I'm like, wow, we don't pay enough tribute to editors, and when they do get Mm -hmm. a chance to make a film, he chose this, which is crazy. Yeah,
2: Yeah. I mean, this whole movie, I'm kind of fascinated by like what comes out of it too, because like if you talk about. beyond that the like main writers and producers are richard goodwin and christine edzard who's Mm -hmm. like who are a married couple and they go on to create this company Sands films which is interesting because it's both a production company and a costume house right and sometimes it is costuming films sometimes it's not but they essentially become the premier home of period pieces and sometimes he he essentially does all those Agatha Christie ones in the 70s oh, um he produces yeah. them and is like he's like a co-producer on them uh but then they go on the probably the one if if you ever watched Little Dorrit in school they make the Little yeah. Dorrit which is by her she and she adapts she even has some original films but she adapts a lot of major works but yeah they they do all these pretty famous uh, period pieces including like Passage to India they did all the costumes the for the craftsmanship
1: and... yeah her big thing was Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet yes. that's hers yes, yes. yes. Which well is, she also you know, wow.
2: she trained uh, under Zeffirelli's art director for the theater so yeah. she she was working with Zeffirelli in uh In Italy. So that's like kind of fascinating. So yeah, and it's interesting because Sans Film still exists and it's this like small company that will bust out when there's like a. Sometimes they produce things, but sometimes they're just making the costumes. Like, it
0: really is. The craftsmanship in this Mm -hmm. film is unbelievable. I was kind of reading Richard Goodwin discuss why he wanted to make this and like a lot of, I think, interviews at the time, especially in the UK, were like really questioning like, why like how this is so it's so uncanny that this would be so successful and he said he really wanted to make a visual souffle and i was like god that's a good term like this this that's film exactly what he made is a souffle and i think Shinbone mm-hmm. Alley, in terms of animation is a bit of a souffle and now anytime mm. you read any of my film reviews of which i write very few um, oh you can god, expect the word souffle will be used
2: Oh, boy
0: yeah. it's, it's <laughs> so but it is like, Stop it calling is. every
2: movie a souffle every movie is a, <laughs> sub- a burlesque souffle
1: souffle <laughs> Uh, that is only the movies that she is going to be watching from here on in and reviewing. She's gonna wait for the right one and then pounce. It's gonna happen. You know what else is a souffle? The um, Phantom Thread.
0: <laughs> she, sure. Yeah, yeah f- if I were to I'll do a thing it. on souffle on film, she makes a lot of souffles. But uh, I've definitely cut <laughs> that out
2: of that. I mean, it's a bit of an omelet.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Lord. Okay, okay. I am ending this episode. (laughs) So once again, Alicia Fletcher, thank you so much for joining us and for bringing both of these movies. They were both really Mm. charming and delightful. It was a nice little break from like all of the horror that we have been looking (laughs) at and also all the horror that we're going into. Yes. I
0: thank both of you for watching these with me. I hope viewers have a chance or listeners have a chance to view these films. Um, And I just love the name Pigling Bland. (laughs) <laughs> I just think that's such a great name for a character Pigling Bland The
1: next cat you have you should name Pigling Bland uh, Yeah there's a lot of
0: There's been cats I've had in my past Where I've definitely thought about uh, Beatrix Potter names Cats are evil in Beatrix Potter There's Tom Kitten But um, it's not a very cat friendly universe I would
1: say Ah, oh, I mm. see. Okay, and you got to stick with yeah. it, I understand. Uh, Cameron Maitland, thank you once again.
2: Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I will say that if you're looking for these movies, they're uh, easy to find. Yes. yes. Ma- <laughs> ma- maybe, maybe Google these and see what comes up. I think um, we can yeah. promote
0: Archive.org. That's an open information source. I think sure, so. Sure,
2: sure. Yeah. The-
1: And they're just—they're charming. They're nice. They're quick. It's—it's just pleasant. If you need a break from everything else that's going on, and if you run a weird
2: boutique DVD label, uh, yeah, give give these guys some money because all these producers seem like nice people.
1: That's right. (laughs) All right, and next week we're going to be joined by special guest Anna Swanson and looking at two movies about class struggle. It's John Cassavetes' most quote-unquote approachable film, Minnie and Moskowitz, as well as W.R., Mysteries of the Organism. Because why wouldn't we want to look at Yugoslavian arthouse cinema? That's coming up next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoy the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Want to email the podcast? You can do so at podcast at hollywoodsuite.ca. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen, on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at HollywoodSuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland, and featured Cameron Maitland and Alicia Fletcher as guests. Supervising producer is Ryan Mains. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagne. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week.
2: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.